It's Open Mouth Syndrome with Elmo Kirkwood and Derek Foster. Back in my younger days, I formed an organization known as the Meat Puppets with your father and your uncle. You did. What year did you start that band? 1980, and I was born in... In 1983, as I recall. You're correct. Now, this is kind of the question. I was going to lead up to it. Why are we doing this? Why are we talking with one another? That's a good question. It is. It's multifaceted answers, too. It's a, it's a loaded question, but... Oh, wait a minute. Hold it. Stop. Main reason we're doing this is because we fucking well feel like it. Yes, absolutely. Because we're allowed to do whatever we want. Uh, but the question is, are we looking for external validation from each other? No, I think we're steeping. <laughs> or... Are we actually in competition with each other to see who can suck the soul out of the other quickest and using a podcast format as cover? I think that the competition is a misnomer in that we're on the same team of wanting to suck the soul out of things. <laughs> yes, right? yes. We're, so, we're, we're, we're like Thelma and Louise in that regard. We're going into a chasm. I'll be editing the, uh, the, the conversation back at my house and go, oh, listen, he said right after I said something. Oh, I feel so validated. But yes, I mean, you're Elmo Kirkwood. I'm Derek Bostrom. We may or may not be uh, doing this for long, depending on how long it takes for the police to find us. <laughs> uh, we're certainly courting disaster by providing exposure uh, of ourselves to the outside world. Right, and our opinions, which are actually pretty mild compared to a lot of people. They're not even really opinions, they're just ideas. There you go. And we just scratched the surface, the tiniest bit, which most people... They're not scratching the surface. They're building mounds to get them closer to Christ. Well, (laughs) in their cat boxes. Right. So one of the themes of our conversations is for us to expose ourselves to the public so that we have the opportunity to explain to them how precious our privacy is. (laughs) That is perfect. I figure the way I feel about it is I remember meeting you again as an adult. Yes. And this hilarious thing happened where it was like a missing puzzle piece to a lot of the humor and just <laughs> just even the ethos in a certain way. Like the whole way that things work with the band and then like the kind of social aspect of how my father and his brother kind of deal with each other. And I remember, oh, shit, you're that thing. It's And it's so you and like you're so clearly hugely influential on those dudes. So it goes like this. Kurt's sitting, driving, and Chris is in the back seat, and Kurt will lean over, kind of, you know, over his shoulder and go, and Chris will go, but with me there, I'll go, yes, indeed, that is exactly the case, what you said there, and I will now flesh it out with words. (laughs) The thing about it is, is like, we're in a band together because we like to make music, and I've never been shy about saying that the non-musical aspects are not worth it, but the musical aspects make up for all of it. It really does. And this is like a lifestyle. You know, there's the rock lifestyle, and then there's the meat puppets lifestyle, but there's also the individual lifestyles that caused us to form a meat puppets lifestyle, which would then be segmented into the rock lifestyle. So there's three levels of alienation at work here. But... <laughs> When we're making music, we're all like relaxed and enjoying it. And that's the focus of the angst and all of the effort. But without the music, and we haven't been on tour for a year. And even before that, we weren't on tour for a couple years. Well, you know, COVID happened. In fact, COVID is still happening if you get right down to it. Right. Because COVID has actually made it very, very difficult for 
artists on the margins like ourselves to go out. Right. And you can't make any money. Everybody has gotten real, real, real forthright and serious about their bullshit, which means you might get your head broken in trying to get into your own backstage. <laughs> you see it all the time in the news. It's very, very difficult for bands to make a living. Meanwhile, increasingly, artists are looking for quote-unquote side hustles. So, for instance, the singer for Bell and Sebastian, he actually gets together very regularly and holds like meditation sessions online. Ooh. He'll get together with a dozen, two dozen fans. That's his side hustle. Why does he do that? Is it strictly a promotional tool for the band or is it something he just happens to enjoy? Probably the latter. Or both. And another artist that we follow back at the house is Joe Pernice of the Pernice Brothers, who during the pandemic was often getting on Instagram and doing these little live acoustic sessions. And then like Budgie, the drummer from Susie and the Banshees, he's got his little podcast and stuff. You know, a friend of mine was like, going, well, I love Susie and the Banshees, but I could give a shit about listening to Budgie's podcast. <laughs> so you have to ask yourself, why do we think that we should do this? I can answer that on my end. Yeah. I don't think I should. You think I should. No, I don't think we should either. <laughs> oh, good. I don't feel like my hand has been forced, but I like being led gently. Well, <laughs> conceivably, this might fit within a format that other people might like. Other people not. But the goal is for us to not create what some people might call a thing. Right. Don't touch the third rail of America. But the problem is we don't know where the third rail of America is because we're not Americans. Now, I'm an old fart. You're slightly <laughs> younger. So I figure that perhaps between the two of us, we might be able to fit our third rail maps on top of each other and avoid the areas that we might get us up. I think we'll be fine there. I think there's. I think we cover the scope of considerations over a lot of generations and decades. We're also looking for uh, soulless, for our soullessness, yeah. and uh, hoping that perhaps some of our listeners might reach out to us and go, that's okay, guys, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. Here's some money. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, you'll you'll be dead soon enough. And soon enough. You can't lobby your complaints then, so then what do you have to complain about? I want to touch back on a couple of things we talked about last week. Well, I'd like that. First of all, we have a governor who's a Democrat and a legislature that's very much the opposite of that, which I guess is Republican in their current state of things. And they passed this law saying that Scottsdale had to hand over water to the people out in Rio Verde outside of Scottsdale. Right. Well... The governor has done nothing but veto stuff that her opponents in the legislature has has put forth, including that one. So she vetoed that. Apparently, it's not happening. Also, what I learned, this is one of the things that I read. I don't know if it's true or not, but the vast majority of people in Rio Verde have got plenty of water. There's just a small group of them <laughs> that are screwed. And they're only screwed because they don't like the cost of their options. So they're not screwed. Well, the thing is, is they would like to make it easier for everybody to get water to, like, join Scottsdale. But the people who are covered and don't want to do that are like, going, no, no, we're fine. There's like 2,000 of them that have no problem, but they don't want to join Scottsdale. And then there's 500 who need to join Scottsdale in order to get access to water. Well, the others to don't want to join Scottsdale because of tax. Right. So it's always been an internal struggle within that neighborhood, even though they've known for years that they have this problem. What does that say about community and your fellow man and culture here? Well, it doesn't seem like very neighborly behavior. It's always been an internal problem with them, and they're trying to make it my problem and right. the governor's problem and the legislature's problem. Right. It just goes to show. Now, the other thing is... <laughs> you're tickling my funny bone today. I like it. Yeah, I'm a riot today. 
The other thing we talked about is how the Tempe folks didn't want to have hockey in town, and we bitched about that a little bit. And what I've come to learn is the NHL really, really doesn't want to remove hockey from Arizona because they don't want to send the team to any one of their expansion cities. Like Las Vegas or something? No, Las Vegas has a hockey team. They do? What are they called? The Golden Knights. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's fucking terrible. Yeah, that's bad. It's really bad, right? I think it's bad that they always... I don't want to name their things after something that, that's going to show that they are either worthy of respect <laughs> or, in the case of teams like the Predators or the Hurricane, they want to have something that's threatening. Our sports team should be called um, Apex Dracula. Yeah, the, <laughs> the Dope Dealers. <laughs> the Cops. <laughs> the Widowmakers. The AR-15 Agers. That's our band name. That's not our sports team. But... Um, <laughs> If, if you move a team, you don't make any money. Right. But if you expand, you can force the city to pay you. Right. So they don't want to taint any of their expansion opportunities. So they're <laughs> going to try really hard to keep the team in Arizona. Anyway. But that's good for you as a hockey fan, right? Uh, you, you want I, a local team? Tickets are very expensive. Mm, so it's a little bit different than it used to be. It's free on TV. TV means you're at home. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Where the bathroom is free. 15 feet away entirely and there's not some dude and, and beers eating. aren't 10 bucks right and the dude's spilling beer and it's sticky on your feet and it smells like pretzels and mustard <laughs> you mean i don't have to wait in line out in the hallway for the opportunity to walk in another man's pee yeah, yeah. I, I prefer not to do that but when you get back to your seat you're penned in like fucking breeding chickens or yeah, something it's disgusting and there's all these people like going i really like this team i like this team go team Make the point. <laughs> I like sporting events to a degree. I go to basketball games sparingly, right? And it had been a while. And they, every five minutes, there's like some dude running out doing like a dance and some shit. Like, yeah. It's, just, it's a whole like all the pageantry. And then the bad music that they play every time there's a dude, timeout. I just want to watch the game, right? So TV is where it's at. You're right, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Me, I can't follow the game as easily because I have my head in my hands the whole time <laughs> weeping. <laughs> <laughs> but at least there's no shitheads going, this most recent 30-second hunk of this game is brought to you by Benson and Hedges Cigarettes. Oh, God. <laughs> there's another nice thing about COVID is that we saved a lot of money. But boy, oh, boy, did we ever have trouble getting our money back from games that were canceled. There's a rigmarole to get your uh, oh, it's terrible. tickets back. Oh, it's terrible. Really? Daki. So anyway, here we sit in your living room uh, talking about things, pretending that this is a side hustle and hoping that <laughs> when we present this to the public, they won't go, fail, no, don't care. <laughs> anyway, as I was on the Instagram, I realized that Robert Crumb is in, in the United States. Robert Crumb is, of course, crazy. He believes in aliens. But, you know, he's <laughs> hiding from the ghosts that are in his home, which is to say they don't want him just sitting in his house alienated from the whole world now that his wife is dead. So he's come out to the United States and people are driving him around, buying 78s as he likes to do. <laughs> and I discovered that he was actually in Arizona last week at some point. Now, I didn't see him, but my heart swelled at the notion that R. Crumb was actually in town. Wow. Why here? His wife had some roots in Tucson. He may have been there to see family or something right. like that. But either way, um, speaking of another person who didn't mind his P's and Q's, didn't watch his step, and is now, his comics are no good because they're transgressive. 
as if that's a bad thing. <laughs> and uh, but you know, I remember the first time my first girlfriend ever, I was like, look at my art crumb comics, and she's like, I hate those. Look at this. Look at this. I'm like, oh my god, that is kind of rotten. But uh, what are you gonna do? I, I always admired R. Crumb. I assume even a person like yourself, who's not a huge comic person, likes R. Crumb. Huge R. Crumb fan. I think that's the kind of comic I love. Uh, my mom and dad turned me on to it, and I realized. Seeing that, I was like, oh, this is so hugely influential. Even S. Clay Wilson, who it took me a while to embrace because his stuff is very, and I hate to use words like transgressive, just like I hate to use words like interrogate or unpack. It was <laughs> an, important in opening up the culture at a certain point, and now the culture has apparently decided that it wants to stay closed after all because it was like, <laughs> why are you guys doing this? But Because it's, it's really filthy. But on every page, it's if you look at dirty. it, what you realize is the reason they do this, and it gets back to what we were saying before, is because they like to. It's fun for them. <laughs> and what they're pushing with their work is a sense of joy. Now, is it a joy on the backs of women, minorities, and even the paying public who's being duped into buying their trash? Yes. But <laughs> the overwhelming sense of their joy and their life-affirming love of their work is clear on every page. Yeah, right. And it's like, well, shit. I mean, I'll take these conversations home, and I'll spend a whole day editing them down from like two hours to one, get rid of all the third rail stuff that I can. <laughs> and I keep asking myself, are we barking up the wrong tree here? Is this going to lead to disaster? There is no right tree. <laughs> oh, Bostrom's gone out too far on a limb again. We better pull him back. Same way we might pull him out of the path of a speeding vehicle. Don't you be compromising us with your filthy art crumb influenced poor artistic decisions. On the phone with my uncle yesterday, he's referring to you as one of the great minds. You don't want to give away too much of what he said to you. But, uh, but it, you know, it's part of my thing about the band is that I'm really impressed by our misanthropy, which is, sounds stupid, but we're a unique force in, in the world as a group of crazy fuckers. And uh, if you're going to tell the story of the meat puppets, I mean, sure, you can just watch the backwater video till you're fucking blue in the face and you'll figure that's all you care about. That's great. But if you actually wanted, I mean, there have been books written about the meat puppets. There have been books written about Kurt's lyrics and trying to analyze them. That is really funny to me. I've never, I haven't ventured into that, you know, because to me, that's just like, Knowing Kurt the way I do. <laughs> you couldn't possibly analyze the lyrics and get it right. No way, dude. It's so goofy. But he's open to any interpretation anyway, so right, it's fine. Right. It's just too funny. We always, from day one, positioned ourselves not just as a group of players, but as a group of crazy people, but not just crazy people. We always pushed our art, the strange things that we would say in our interviews. It's always been grist for our mill. We've always been a, a lifestyle brand as well as a music brand. <laughs> a failed lifestyle and music brand, but nonetheless. <laughs> so why would we be doing this? Is because we, uh, we're vain. <laughs> well, you understand what the parameters you're operating safely within. But then, because you're operating from a foundational place of knowledge, you can operate to the best of your abilities and that shit or your desires right right oh no of course i think i yeah i see those as one and the same because my desire is to function far below my ability <laughs> well don't worry the, but the ability is is all theoretical because it's potential but it's there believe you me <laughs> it's up to others to bring it out in me 
And if they refuse and victimize you the way they always have and should, well, then so be it, right? <sighs> if that's your lot in life, then fucking stick a flag in it. Yeah. Well, that's the the problem, though, is is perception, and that sometimes uh, you look like you're at the front of the line, but then if you turn around, suddenly you're at the end of the line. You so know, you've got to stay in one direction. When I was a little kid. I thought to myself, because the world is round, even if I'm behind you, yep. I'm in front of you. Yep. And I loved that. I was probably like really young, right? And I was like, there's no in front of. <laughs> I was like, we're all in one big long circle. Right. Hey, circle of life, Derek. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's a problem because sometimes you're in it and sometimes you feel like you're out of it and your stupid perceptions get in the way of your, uh, your own self. And that's where um, psychedelics come in. Ooh. Oops. I still have negative feelings. I can just see my way around them. Agreed. Right. I think I, yes. It gives you a tool to work yourself course through correct. them. Course correct. Yeah. And, and, and not act on them. For me, like on shrooms, I can course correct, which I used to not be able to do. If the bads came, it was like, uh-oh, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen. But now I'm like, hey, you're no good. I'm going to think about something real creamy and dreamy that melts into gooey goodness inside of my brain hole. The, the bottom line is is that there are processes that you can put together that make it easier on yourself. Yeah, you can streamline not, things to a certain not degree. Not harder. Right. And sometimes just allowing your own impulses to take control makes it harder on yourself down the road. It's actually cool to let go of that, obviously, right? And see what you can get out of other people and then have that be the process in which you make music. Chris is like, what should have happened in about 1985 after we put out Up on the Sun was we would have needed somebody heavy to take us in hand. It's always been one of Chris's things. It's like, why didn't Brian Eno pick me instead of Bono to take in hand? I'm like, well, that's kind of part of the problem with you know collaborations and process. <laughs> uh, we are always pretty feral in our approach. It's very off the cuff, very spontaneous, and not very careerist. So you can see why somebody like a Brian Eno who's very process-oriented probably relates to certain types of people better than others. The idea of Chris Kirkwood and Brian Eno, I I just can't see it. Nor can I. I also, Eno did some cool shit. Yeah. He did a lot of shit that's not cool. I'm sure he enjoys what he does. I enjoy what I do. He has done a lot of really great shit, but he's done stuff that, like, you listen to go, wow, that's actually, you bothered to do that, huh? There's always that shit with producers that are great producers, and you see some of the shit they waste their time on, you're like... There's like buddies of yours or something. Yeah. Like I, I lost interest in Brian, you know, when he started working with bands like Talking Heads and Devo. And I hated Before and After Science, but I loved um, music for airports. But that's me. I've heard all those records. I just never cared. You're not really an Eno person. I've tried and I get what it is. But I also like the stuff that he did with David Bowie. Not a huge fan of that. I actually do like stuff that he did with Devo, though. I think if that album came out today, it would still sound fresh. David Bowie worked with Ken Scott before he worked with Brian Eno. I really love Ken Scott. I always really loved Ken Scott's work. It's clean, it's tight, it's energetic. And then he does the stuff with Brian Eno. It's a little meandering, it's right? Very meandering. It's a little self-indulgent. It's experimental. That's fine. Devo did an album with Brian Eno, and then they turned around and did an album with Ken Scott. I really like that second album. That's got it. But I think the first album, the, the message is muddled. I don't think that the material is as well served as it is in the second. And you know what? I am in the vast minority on that one, I think. But I, of course, was a Devo fan before that album came out. So I already had an opinion of how I wanted Devo to sound. Now, of course, 
Brian Eno helped make the Talking Heads. So at the time, it was like, oh, thank God, Brian Eno has deigned to anoint the Talking Heads as somebody worth paying attention to by people who don't like their music. Hooray! That's a pretty good album. Um, <laughs> and I didn't give a rat's ass about Remain in Light. Just couldn't have cared less at all. At that point, it was like, oh, you guys have fallen into a little bit of a groove there where you think you're good to go. You found a process where you can just <laughs> mine it indefinitely and make money off of it. And I'm just going to go somewhere else for, for my fun now. Thanks. What other producers do you like from that era? From the 70s? Yeah. You know, when I first heard Todd Rundgren, I was just knocked out. Right. I loved Todd Rundgren's solo records up until when he uh, started playing with that Utopia 4 piece. It's okay. I liked <laughs> some of the Utopia stuff later. I, I bang on the drum all day. It's funny. <laughs> right, right, right. Their Beatles pastiche album I liked. The thing that's weird about Todd is he would make his bones producing other artists, and a lot of that stuff I couldn't care less about. Yeah. I mean, sure, everybody loves Grand Funk, right? Yeah. I mean, that's cute. But, you know, Meatloaf, at that point, I was just like, oh, my God. Patti Smith album, didn't care for it at all. And I like the first Patti Smith album as a lot of your aspirational punk rocker ex-hippies would there's have at the cool, time. See, there's some cool stuff there. It's good. It's a time and a place, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. When I had my little money from my summer job in 1977, not knowing any better, I went out and got the first Patti Smith album and the first television album. And those are my two punk rock purchases. <laughs> but that, then I discovered where I could find um, singles from L.A. and from the U.K., and then I never looked back. Where was that that you could find those? Well, there was one of the local record chains. There was a couple of punk rock fans. Uh -huh. What year would this be? 77, 78. Oh, wow. So, right. Yeah. Wow. So the first L.A. punk shit. The, yeah. The beginning of it. Right. The, the what records? The Danger House records. So how old were you? I turned 18 in 1978, in June of 78. <laughs> so this is you in your teen years. Yeah. The, so it's like a perfect timing in a way. You know what I mean? You're Yeah, it was like Little Mr. Punk Rock from like 1977. My father's always credited you with uh, getting him into the punk rock. Your dad's house was on the way to the Tower Records. So a lot <laughs> of times I'd go out there and shop, and then I'd swing by and see what those guys were doing. And one time I just bought the first album by Stiff Little Fingers. Not aged well in my mind at all. They're a group from Belfast. Unique in that they're basically like going, enough with this trouble stuff. We got Catholics and Protestants in our band. We're just disaffected youth. But it was like clash imitation stuff. I didn't really care for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, But it was cool to get at the time. And your dad was like, let me check this out. And he, unlike all my other friends, he was actually not dismissing it out of hand. <laughs> so I put that in my back pocket. Real quick. How old were you when you met Kurt? I met Kurt in 76. <laughs> so you guys were teenagers. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so funny to me. But this would have been like 80. Right, and and so. he came over and he had a little hash and he was looking for a place to smoke it. And I showed oh, him oh, radical. Um, the first Damned album and Raw Power. Raw Power. And he had just apparently seen Iggy Pop. He'd gone to a show to see Iggy Pop play at Dooley's. And that was what the tour when they had the 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 Damned uh, first. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, check these records out. So he took them home, and he came back a couple of days later, and he'd learned like half the songs on them. And we began to jam on them, and we was like, yeah, you know, we should go ahead and bring your brother over and see if we can come up with something. And according to Kurt, he had to shame Chris into doing it because he's like, I don't want to go play that punk rock with that fucking Bostrom. <laughs> I'm sure, that's uh, overstated. 
but he came over and Chris was very grudging anyway. He was still coming out of his shell. Right. <laughs> Part of the thing about the band is like he found himself on stage. He became Chris Kirkwood as right. a member of the Meat Puppets. And um, he was amazed that people cared. I was like, oh, people are going to like this. And he's like, and they, they did. And he never really looked back. <laughs> now it's like the band is an integral part of his personality. Oh, yeah. Well, it always was. It's something for him that's like, it's weird. I can't speak for him. I don't really know what it is that, <laughs> but it is a big part of him. In a good way, though. Well, it's, no, it's a very good way. That's what's fascinating about it. He really lives it. We, you know? we make fun of his um, of his noodling on stage and stuff like that. But he is as pure a artist slash musician as you're ever going to meet, both in good and bad ways. But when I came back around, suddenly it meant that he had somebody he could play with in town. What you guys have is really unique. And like I've told you, mentioned many times, is it just, it just sounds just such a weird thing, like... The band is such a unique thing. We just came up doing it together for so long. It's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first time I ever played with Chris really was when he came back around when I was 22. Yeah. And we were just fucking around. We did some crazy stuff. It was kind of like, ha-ha. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's just some, some stuff. It's just natural, right? Yep. I really liked it. And I had that with you, too, which was funny. First time you and me jammed was just like, hey, look, we could do that together. How funny. When we started playing, I love playing with you. Yeah, like, likewise. Because I'll look over there, and we're on stage, and it's loud and stuff like that. And I'll be like, oh, oh look at, I can see what you're seeing in me yes. and what you're responding to what I'm doing. And likewise. And it brings me to a new place. Same. And we never played together. No, and, but and, we have a very good connection, and we can read each other. We cue each other well. It's fun. What's weird about it, of course, is that it's loud, and each one of us sparks off a different pieces of each other. My experience in music is this. This is funny. My very first thing I loved in music were drums. Yep. And you remember that. So I'd ask to be watch you during the shows. Yep. You're the first thing I remember, really, from music is you. <laughs> right. And that's funny because I don't think about that, but I just loved drums as a kid. I still love drums. And, like, it's so funny that, like, things are just come full circle like that, and then you and me jam. <laughs> and the first time we do it, it's fucking cool. Yeah. And it was unique, too. It was weird. It was like, oh, weird. We both out. knew what to do. Yeah. And that's when I called Kurt, and I was like, hey, dude, I stayed in the studio with Bostrom all day today. He's like, oh, really? I was like, yeah, man, you get what I'm saying? <laughs> I was like, he's really good. And Kurt was like, I hear you. And I was like, ching, Bostrom made the move. I made the move. Everybody knew. You fucking just like slide right in there. Perfect. Everyone knows how to do this shit. It's simple as fuck. It was the same thing as when fucking Krusty Party Pants came back. He came over to my house and I was like, whoa, dude. You're and he's willing to show up. Right. And that's the important thing. It's like you can invite somebody all you want. Right. But when you do so, it's with the expectation that they're going to show up. It doesn't have to be as hard as reconciling the Israelis and the Palestinians. You just have to show up. And that's one of the things that we do. And that's one of the, it's like, all right, it's going to happen. Oh, yeah. There's no problem. It's just going to happen. This is excellent with it because there's not much he derives pleasure from, right, in his yep. life. He finds a huge amount of pleasure right. from playing music. And that's why we must provide a platform which he can wiggle his body upon and do his little dance moves and go, bear. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Fucking great to be here, Cincinnati. Let me tell you, last time I was in Cincinnati, I had myself a ham sandwich. I'd like to introduce to you my nephew. My nephew, Derek Bostrom. Great to have him back in the bay. That um, that I told you about, yeah, <laughs> uh, such a betrayal. I uh, so that was a funny night too because Kurt's like, "You want to change strings?" And I was like, "No, I'll be good." Oh, I kept breaking strings. It was bad. I was like, "Oh, oh." I was like, I need to get my shit together. Like, this is different, right? Like, because I've been on tours with my bands and stuff like that. It's just a little different. It was like, but you know how to play your songs to avoid breaking your strings. <laughs> yeah, you just slack off, but you can't <laughs> slack off on another man's songs. <laughs> oh man, figuring out how to play in the band was funny. I figured it out. It took a like, year and a half to really like. Kurt doesn't doesn't sit you down and tell you what to do by any means. Teach me anything. No, it's fine by me. <laughs> It was interesting. I'm, it was fun. I like it a lot more now. I'll bet. When we quote-unquote jam, when we, which is to say when we play anything, we're doing it from a, a, a shared understanding. Even though the three of us had our own different uh, things, a part of, of what made the band work was that we were able to like come together as three individuals with three different frames of mind and make it work. Right. And so when we play with you... <laughs> it's like with an understanding that your basic handicap being not born as early as we were is actually going to be a benefit to us. <laughs> it helps us grow. And also you're more than willing to stake out your own place and defend it and all that stuff, which is great. And then we bring the Ron Meister in. <laughs> it's just bringing people in. You can really tell when somebody is not just adding something, but bringing something out of you. I like little Ron. I like his bullshit. I, he's... Oh, he brings a great sense of adventure to it. He's always willing to try different stuff. He's he's also relatively good at the fact that we refuse most of his things and he tries them. It was really funny. <laughs> when we got together on that last tour, he had gotten the COVID, right? Right. So he was going to miss our first show, but he was like hustling <laughs> to get there. At the Club second and... show, right? Yeah, right. That fucking freak. Well, you know, we were still feeling our way around what it means to have COVID. I was like, well, if you're not symptomatic, you should come because you're not going to test negative for like weeks. So just, just deal with it. But then he shows up late and we're able to cajole the club and let him do a line check. Right. You know, we're done. And you turn to me and say, all right, Bostrom, tell him. And I go, so Ron, now that you're here, we've decided that we want you to stop playing that Return to Forever shit. Oh, that was fucking magical <laughs> after he's just driven all day. And he's like, okay. He just says, okay. And then he, he does it, it anyway. He does it anyway, but less. Yeah. That was a really good show in Dallas. Um, that was just us that night, right? Right. That was just, it was just nice. The night before was, was less fun without him. That was a weird show. Yeah. It's hard to put into words what it just felt wrong. Whenever something feels wrong, then you feel the urge to try to put it into words. Fuck that. It's wrong, dude. That's bad juju. You see that? Your feelings were compromised. I've maybe been in that position before. I know. They, maybe they weren't all the way hurt, but compromised is close enough to uncomfortable, or it is uncomfortable, which is hurt adjacent. So, God damn it, I'm injured. Video Meliora, comma. Probeak, semicolon, <laughs> deteriora sequor, which is from the Metamorphosis by Ovid. And apparently it means I see the better way and to prove it, I follow the worse. Wow. You know. And that sums me up in uh, a nutshell. I, hmm. You know how sometimes things end in a way that you're like really pleased by? Yes. That whole little thing there. Yeah. Because they were really 
pleasant ending for me. Like, and I know that it was made to be that way because you knew it was good. It's Ovid, but it's really good. It's not only does it sound cool, but it is cool. What it actually is, it's just kind of like check this shit out. That was that's really good. Ooh, I gave me that. I get a little smile inside my brain. I love that shit when it's like, ooh, I like you. I liked it so much I put it as my <laughs> tagline on Instagram. I love it when shit turns you on, like even just little things, right? Just a collection of words, just a little thought. They're called you know, quotes. Somebody's, the way they articulated some idea, some concept, right? And the cool thing about that is different sorts of like articulation also could pinpoint little like variables to it. Like that it's like, well, I never thought of it quite this way, yada, yada, yada. Humans do a lot of cool shit for as much dumb shit as we do. And some humans. And, well, yeah, of course. But and you when you say know. dumb shit, don't put the word we in that sentence. I think English is actually a really cool language. There's so many words and so many ways to describe something to a very like definite point, like like all the fucking synonyms and shit like that, like which is to say that that Ovid translation is probably totally wrong from the Latin. But that's awesome. So that means whoever translated it has a really fucking cool way of translating that perfume book by Patrick Suskin, which he wrote in German. The American whoever translated it, I remember they were saying it was done really like carefully and with translation to English. It was such a beautiful book to think that wow, this was translated from German. Whoever did this, really just beautiful. I see that there could have been a better way to translate it, and I approve of that. But I followed the worst translation. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing about it is, is like, going out on the road, it sucks, too. Going yeah, out on the road, does. it really sucks. The only thing that makes it great is when you realize nothing matters except for the show. Right. The show's the shit. And then you can put your whole thing into the show. The show is the point. Just be the show. <laughs> the rest of it, I still like the drives. I see a lot of pretty stuff. The endurance is great, too. Yeah. And to get into play is like such a trip because it's such a selfish thing. It's also everybody else enjoys it. So that's there. It's like I don't feel connected to the people, but I feel like we're having a shared experience, which I don't feel like I have a lot of shared experience with my fellow man. Right. So it's like, hey, cool. We're here together, at least like. Right. That's our entrance point into the <laughs> fucking human race. Right. Since we're plastic people and artists. <laughs> It's funny, Frank Zappa called the non-artists plastic people, but really the artists are the plastic people. They're the ones that live in the, in the world of the artifice. And I'm trapped in my, my own head, in my own trip. Yeah, right? It's weird. It's not about attention from people, but it's about the making of shit. It gives your life some focus. Yeah, and it's one more thing that you can kind of throw shit at. And I think it's cool because I want to see... Like, evolution of shit. Like, I feel like I've been in different moods and different levels of energy every time we've got together. Yeah. So it's going to be different. And I know myself well enough to know that there's a lot of consistency in the way I communicate. But paying attention to how you would make this sort of thing work. Because I've noticed anytime I do other shit, it is other people that are starting it and guiding it, right? And I can take over and shit, which I've done interviews and stuff before where I'm just like, these aren't interviews. A lot of times when we get into interviews, it's just like that. We end up taking over. The average interviewer cannot possibly keep up with us. They ask questions about, well, see, if I was to interview somebody, I'd be afraid I'd piss them off by asking them questions that were like 
that would actually require them to dig. And right. There's so much of that gotcha-ness that people are afraid of. They want to send everybody a softball question, but then it ends up becoming like some sort of self-promotion for the podcaster, for the interviewer, for the artist, instead of an opportunity to interrogate, there's that word again, what it is the fuck we're doing here on earth. <laughs> And we like to make the music. The music is nice sounds and stuff. We practice it and then we execute it on stage. But that's not really what's happening. The music is a point of focus for our pathetic little lives. <laughs> it's not about making the noises that then people come, they buy the drinks, they clap, they leave, they post the selfies or whatever. But what we're doing is what I like to call showing up. And that's why it's taken five years for us to do this. Because it's like, how do we show up for it? You say you're doing this because I've cajoled you into it, but that's not really true. That's not really true. I do it because I want to. And, but it's it also has to happen. In order for it to happen, it has to happen. I like the idea of it. I've always, people have told me I should do this kind of shit or try it out, right? And I've always wanted to. And you and I have, I enjoy the way we converse. It, we have to create some sort of a safe accord in order to do <laughs> right. it. Or else it will suck, which it probably does anyway. Even if it sucks, we could get really good at it, though. Most things do suck. It'll get good. Neither here nor there. You know how you can tell when it's good? When you start to hate it. Yeah. You don't have to fucking make it be a promotional thing. It's just a couple of guys talking about whatever the fuck is on the top of their heads. And it seems like a stupid thing to do. But to me, the thing that's cool about podcasts is it's elevated these kinds of conversation into art yeah me too actually i like the conversation shit no matter what it is like if the people have a good rapport there's the chemistry right that's right. what makes it cute oh this these people can get down and it, it makes it fun you but know some I mean? people hate that <laughs> it's like comedians in cars getting coffee <laughs> you know right either you like that kind of thing you don't i've only seen like one of those and i didn't uh i don't watch stuff though i'm not a i don't see a lot of things God, I can't even fucking hardly sit down and watch a movie. I'm just like, uh. and every once in a while I can do it, right? And I dig it. You know, usually that's I'm stoned. One time, um, we were going through the original Star Trek episodes, <laughs> which are are really great. I really like those. And uh, I happened to have uh, smoked a little more pot. Uh, usually, I avoid pot like the plague because it makes me makes my mind go nonstop for days. Either way, uh, yeah. All I could see was the cuts in the film and I saw how they always use Spock's reaction is like cocking of his eyebrow and shit to like break the action up. And then I could tell the difference in the film grain. And I was like, Oh, I'm too high to watch stuff. Cause I can't, couldn't follow the story. I could just watch the way it was being made. I'm sure that happens to you with yeah. music too. I'll well, that's to what I like about music. I realized that some people can't hear that shit separately. And I'd always been able to. So I always understood like when I heard music recorded, I was like, okay, it's like a sculpture that you build up on. You're not supposed to see the seams like, and the buttons. Know, yeah, yeah. It's like, but they're there. Right. <laughs> it's really cool. Like to me, it always made sense. So when it came time to start recording music right. as a teenager, it was like you can't make the record. You have to build the record yeah, out of parts. You build. Yeah. It's really fucking cool. When I was a teen, I used to put on my headphones and get high and listen to my records. And like, there are certain formative things that I noticed, like listening to Uncle Meat by the Mothers of Invention, <laughs> which has a ton of edits, right? right? And so I was able to hear just all of a sudden, I had never heard, I'd heard this track dozens of times, and I, I could hear the edit <laughs> and where it went from one performance to another. And what you can hear <laughs> is the different 
studio. Like you could actually really, hear yeah, yeah. that was in a different room. Another record I heard that on was like Emerson, Lake and Palmer trilogy albums. <laughs> like it awesome. goes from a keyboard part. No, it's a synth patch. Okay. And then suddenly it opens up into a band performance. And just like that, you can hear it go from an electronic signal to a room. Right. And it just... I well, never look back. Those old, uh, like older albums like that. Right, it's way, so good for that stuff. You, you like get some really beautiful stuff on some of those records. Like you're like close to the edge. That part of close to the edge when it suddenly goes into that weird organ exactly. wash. It's fucking crazy. And then they go into that. It's, it's fucking nuts, man. Kurt showed that to me when I was probably like 14. And I was just like, I already figured out that punk rock was cool, but like... It's easy. Yeah, and I, been in the punk rock that I like... It sounds was, like a band that's been mic'd up and they just play. Right, right. I still like playing punk rock and stuff, but I liked all this different music. And hearing Yes was just like, oh shit, right? Like, And then he played me the same trip. He played me Mahavishnu Orchestra. You know, I hadn't heard stuff like that before. Do like, you know the album Initiation by Todd Rundgren? The uh, pink one with the Leonardo da Vinci thing on the cover. But side two is like this... 30 minute synthesizer freakout fest. And that used to be like the pinnacle for us at a certain age, like yeah. in 76 when we were teenagers, <laughs> to get high and try to make it through that all the way through it. It was like, yes, squared. Some of it's really terrible. <laughs> it's Rundgren? Yeah. Yeah, he's a freak. God. We just used to trip out to that so hard. Of course, there was, uh, when you're a teenager, you work really hard to put yourself in places and situations where you can trip out really hard. Yeah. It's different when you're uh, old, like we are, whatever. <laughs> There's like constraints. But when you're a teenager, your whole focus is to find a way to get away from everybody. As a teenager, Cinder was, my mom was really cool. She like fucking let me take my bedroom and like make it into like a little studio because I had a four track and I just slept in the guest room. I had a couch in there. And then a table, and then like it was like you could hang out in there, and then, like and I'd listen to albums and just get high as shit. I'd listen to live Jimi Hendrix. And I remember having it was good, but like scary with like live Hendrix, like because I'd be listening to this shit, just going, "How in the serious fuck did you do that?" Like all I can do is go, "How fucking cool you existed." And figure that the fuck out. Like, oh, there's a lot of good guitar players. There's a lot of people who can play a lot of notes. But Hendrix knew how to <laughs> go from his brain to his fingers to the electronics in his fucking amp to creating something that was spontaneously... Jeez. It's not even like jazz. Jeez. Compared to Hendrix, jazz is old hat. It and really Hendrix is. feels so... He takes what rock and roll guitar would be, right? Just and of course, you know, we, we get to feel that way because he died and, and, and deprived us of his, his later years. That's what's fucked up about it. Is that In the real world, what you want to do is get kicked out of Eden so you're on your own and you got to figure it out for yourself, right? You know, you got a guy like Hendrix who's operating in this late 60s rock milieu with all these other clowns like Townsend and Clapton and, and all of their handlers and all of their impresarios who are out there trying to make a buck off of them. And here's Jimmy who's like, evolutionarily plugged into this reality where he can take all of this stuff, not because he's trying to, not because he's a man of vision per se, but because he's here in the moment and this is what occurs to him to do. If you're a genius. And somebody who just screams joy at you and you get such a positive yeah. experience from listening to his music. Brilliant. He's know. able to slough off all of the weird karma of the day, mm -hmm. even though he was like the pinnacle of like, noise guitar and he had that mystique that hype around him 
but you can fucking drill past all of that stuff and just get with Jimmy right. and it becomes a completely positive experience that makes you realize, oh, fuck all that other shit. Yeah. Ron has been doing nothing but his music for like months and he's just like lost in his own little thing. He's been entirely too busy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he told a... me he had an eight hour rehearsal. Uh, I think it was yesterday or Saturday. I'm like, Ugh. what were they doing for eight hours? Practicing a difficult piece of music for a presentation they're doing. Well, he does these things that's like, here's the music. Now learn it. Right. I've watched him break down the math to do the timing on this stuff because yeah. it's intense. And he's brilliant. He's been doing it his whole life. <laughs> what a trip. I don't see music like that. I guess I could, but I don't. <laughs> no, my brother studied composition in school. Well, your brother is the, the real artist. <sighs> he's the real artist in the family, yeah. Not like me. I'm a hack. Holy old fucking Derek. I'm somebody who just took no talent at all and ran with it, utilizing media gimmickry. <laughs> <laughs> 